John 6, 59. So Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and it was who would bet- and who it was who would betray him. And so he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe, have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So today as we walk through this text, I want to give a little bit more focus on those who remain. We've, we just read that there are some who, are, who have been following Jesus for a while and they're going to turn their back and they're going to walk away and we will deal with them. But I really want to give a great emphasis to those that stay because those are the ones that we really need to learn from because of uh, the decision that they have made. Now one of the realities of ministry is this, is that over time, if you stay at a place for a while, there is... Such great joy in seeing people grow in their relationship with God and, and to see, to literally see Christian maturity happening in their lives. And as you do life together and, and, and are there for one another in difficult, in difficult times. But one of the other great heartaches that's on the flip side of that is people that you've done life with for a long time and then they decide to leave and they decide to walk away. And I know that over the years, I've experienced both of those sides of things, and there's the great joy of, of us being together, and I look across the, sh- you know, well, some of us, there's just a few of us left from way back when, when uh, way back when you go back 12 years ago, um, through the years, and, and, I, and I see these, and I see those of you who have joined us along the way, no matter if it is recent or if it's been a while, and I'm incredibly thankful that we are doing this thing together. And I hope that you stay with this because I believe that one of the great cries um, in our culture today among Christians is the cry for community. I know that to be true and I know it to be valuable. And one of the great things is there's a great search for that. And I think that community, I actually posted an article this, uh, this weekend or a few days ago on the internal Facebook page about this. Community is always built. It's not necessarily found. You don't find it just in a field somewhere it's it's found by doing life together and remaining together and I look at the Donahoe's back there and Riley's not here this morning I just think of all the the things that we have talked about in the last 12 years and the things that we have experienced together and so Jesus I think was not immune from this he's got a group of people that have attached themselves to this larger group of 13 of them. So we've got Jesus and 12 disciples. But then you have another group of people that are not the crowd who ate the bread the day before. There's another group of people that along the way, Matthew 9, 35 tells us this, that that Jesus went through all of the towns and villages. So when it says he went through all the towns and villages... That means that he went through all of those. And here's what happened. So he would step into a village. He would step into a town. He would preach. He would do a miracle. And there would be people in that that town or village that would get excited about what they had just seen and what they had experienced. And so they would begin to follow along with Jesus and the Twelve. And so as Jesus and the Twelve went to another place, they would begin to follow. And over time, you had a larger group of people that were following Jesus and the twelve. So I don't, we don't really know exactly how many of those people were, but the text indicates today that a great many of those, however many it was, where they had left their homes, they had left their jobs, they had left a number of different things, maybe left their studies, whatever the case may have been. And now they're following around this, this Jesus guy, and they're participating, getting to know 
Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus are getting to know the twelve, and they are doing life together. And now they come to Capernaum. We're less than a year away from the crucifixion, probably somewhere around six to eight months, probably around eight months or so from the crucifixion, and this is deep into Jesus' ministry. And Jesus does this miracle in the front part of John chapter 6, and then all of this discussion that we have been looking at over these last weeks, and Jesus will lay out for them, here's what it looks like to follow me. And he's going to set forth for them what true discipleship looks like, and some will decide to stay, and some will decide to leave. It's almost as if somebody would say, well, it looks like Jesus is trying to send people away. He doesn't want, any, doesn't want people to stay there. You know, should he, should he lighten up a little bit so that more people will stay? You know, he, he probably didn't read all the new pastor help books, you know, that are around today, and here's how you do this and you know, all that. Jesus just, he, he actually was not interested in sending anybody away. But what he was interested in was this, is calling people to see what true discipleship looked like. Because in true discipleship, that's where you find life. You don't find it in false discipleship. You find it in an authentic, true discipleship. And so as Jesus is, as we've walked through John chapter 6, he set forth for people, here is what it looks like to know me deeply. You've got to drink of my blood, eat of my flesh. In other words, we know this. He's saying you've got to take all of me in. He's not talking in a literal sense, but he's saying you've got to take all of me in because I'm the bread who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. And so if you want this life, then you've got to take all of me in. And so, so Jesus just sets forth for the people. Here's what this looks like. And so let's see what he is doing here, and let's learn from uh, what the text has for us today. And I want us to look, first of all, this morning about what true disciples look like. And here's what true disciples look like, verse 60. And it'll be the opposite of kind of what we see here, but I'm gonna, I want to emphasize because um, there are some that stay. And so here's, look at 60 again. So when many of his disciples heard it, now this again, this is not the crowd, the bread crowd, this is those that have left their towns and villages and they were following around with Jesus and the twelve. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to this? So we've got this understanding of who these disciples are. So we are in a synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus has set forth, here's the reality, you've got to take me in, you've got to eat of my flesh, you've got to drink of my blood. And after the sermon's over, you get the sense that it happens here, it'll happen here in a moment. You begin to mingle in here and talk, or somebody goes outside, or you drive home and you go, God, can you believe he said that today? And, or can you believe they said that? Or did you? And they begin to talk. And so this is what happens after he's done. After he's done, they turn to one another and they've been following, getting to know one another. And this outer group of disciples, the word disciple means learner, they turn to one another and began to talk. And they're like, somebody says something like this, he's entered crazy land. What in the world is he talking about? They're eating flesh and, and drinking blood. And they're like, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been kind of thinking about, you know, I left my crops, I left my vineyard, I left my animals, you know, I left my parents, I, I left this. And they began to think to themselves and began to grumble like, okay, he, he's kind of talking about stuff that I'm not really interested in anymore. You know, I like the food stuff. I like that. I like the casting out the demons. I like the healing of the blind, the lame who can't walk. I like that. But, but this stuff about taking him in and making him be my life. I don't know if I'm really on board with that. And so they're grumbling about this. But here's the reality. True disciples don't do that. True disciples do this. There's a heart in a true disciple that says this. Give me the word, whether it's soft or whether it's hard. I want the word. Give it to me. It's almost like we've all been there before. You ever had a real dry mouth and try to eat a, a peanut butter cracker? And you're just chewing on it and it just sticks and there's no water and this is kind of where they are they're chewing on these words and they're like 
They're just choking on it. And they're like, I don't know if I want to swallow this. I'm not going to buy into this. This is not going to be the direction that I want to go. And let me give you three key markings of true disciples with point one here. Here's the first one. True disciples practice hearing, listening to the word of God. So they place themselves in a setting like this. They go to places where they're, they're reading and listening to the Scripture. And so here you've got the 12 who've been following around with Jesus. And they are listening. They are hearing. They've been hearing all the things that Jesus is teaching. Secondly, as I just said, I believe authentic disciples are okay with whatever Jesus wants to say. If this Sunday is a difficult text that's going to challenge my life, I'm great with that. And I'm great for the one that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That one talks about comfort, but I also like the ones that call me to die. Because every time Jesus speaks, this is what he's doing. He's calling me to more life. He's never pushing me away to go to death. He is calling me to more of Him, which means more of life. And so an authentic disciple listens to the Word of God. An authentic disciple just welcomes that Word of God regardless of what's being communicated. And thirdly, here's a mark of a disciple, is they listen and they walk from what they listen. They walk in it. So not only is it just listening, but it's how am I going to live this out in the world, and I'm going to follow it. And the 12 were doing this. Did they do it perfect? Absolutely, they didn't do it perfect. But they eventually got it. And they got it at Pentecost. And it radically changed their lives, where they laid their lives down. Peter wrestled with it. We just read a while ago, Peter is going to make another great confession here in John chapter 6. Not long from this, in about six to eight months, Peter's going to make completely opposite. He's going to like, I don't know the guy Never heard of him? No, 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 no. I, no, I'm not, I'm not one of them. I'm not a follower. And he will do it three times. But then on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, Peter gets it. And so listen, church, so important for us to understand this. True disciples, true learners, true followers, they listen regardless. And I hope this morning you're in the room going, bring it on, God. Whatever you want to say today, if it's from you, it means more life and you bring it on. And so they, they turn to one another. This outer group, not the 12, they turn to one another. And they're like, gosh, this is really difficult. All this stuff that he's talking about. Who can really listen to it? You'll remember these words. This is Matthew chapter 7, 24. Listen to the difference. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. So you hear them. Live them, do them, live them out. That person's a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And life happens, and it happens, does it not? The rains come, floodwaters rise, the wind blows, the earth shakes, and that house founded on a foundation that lasts, it stands, not because the person's great, but because the foundation is great and it stands. And then Jesus says, and then let me just say this to you. He says, and everyone who hears these words but decides to not follow them is foolish. They go down to the Louisiana coast and just go right up to the shore there and build a big old house knowing that hurricanes just consistently come floodwaters come and just build no foundation just build it on the sand that's there and just hope for the best and the person jesus says who does this is a foolish man builds his house on the sand and those same storms of life come the rain fell floods came winds blew beat against that house and it fell and jesus said great was the fall of that house or in other words that life and so as jesus that day the this outer group are discussing with one another god are we going to hang around with this words are we going to buy into this are we going to continue to do this or or i think i i think i'm going to go back i'm going to go back home and i believe this with all of my heart church i think to walk away from jesus is the most unbiblical step anybody can ever do in their life to walk away from him i can't think of anything more tragic than to walk away from christ and i can't think of anything more freeing than to stay and abide because in staying and abiding there's a 
a power that comes by clinging and holding fast to the glory of who he is. Here's the second thing that the 12 were marked by at this point. The crowds were not going to be marked by is that the development of faith comes from the hearing of the word of Christ. So look at 61 and 62. So Jesus knows that they're, this outer group are talking with one another. And so, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so the disciples, this outer group, are, are complaining about what Jesus has been saying, and they're wrestling with it, thinking about going back to their old lives. And so Jesus asks them, so why are you offended by that? So you're taking offense at what I have just told you about bringing more life. And if you'll take all of me in, then you're going to have a life that's way better than anything you could find back home. And so he calls them out for not liking his eternal words. And he says, do you take offense at what I've, I've said to you? And let me remind us, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, I only speak whose words? His father's. So when Jesus talks about drinking my blood, eating my flesh, guess who has already said that and already affirmed that, already communicated that? The Father has, and so Jesus is just agreeing with that. Now watch what happens here. In John 6, 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, they were like, yeah, let's go make this guy our king. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's make him king. Now from that's 6, 15, and then 6, 26, through 66, they don't want to have anything to do with him anymore. And if his words are true, and they don't want to have anything to do with him anymore, it means this, that their desire for authentic bread of life is also done. What changed? Well, a lot of things changed, and it was his words. He has told them he is the only way for salvation. He has called himself the Son of God. He has said, I'm far more superior than Moses. Salvation must be in faith in me alone. Apart from God's work, you can't even believe because the Father is the one who is drawing and it's just all too much for them. They want to take it anymore. And then Jesus says this, well, let me tell you, remember what I just told you? That I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. What if right now in this room you saw me just leave this room and with your eyes saw me to go back to where I was before I came here? Would you believe then? And the indication is what? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't even believe then because here's the reality. Faith eventually always comes down to this. It has nothing to do with sight. Faith has to do with trusting in the things that you cannot see and believing them to be true. And the 12 have come to a place And Peter's going to make this great confession in a moment. But the twelve come to this place where they recognize that there's not another place to go and their faith is being developed and it's coming from hearing the word of Christ that he is teaching. The other group has heard the word of Christ, same word, and have a different response to what has been communicated. So let me remind us. Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Jesus has communicated the truth. Some want it. Some don't want it. Some are going to say. Some are going to walk away. And people in this room right now in this moment are going to do two things. You're doing it right now and you'll do it by the time when I'm done. We have two responses always to the word of God. We will receive God's word or we will reject God's word. Those are, the, those are the choices. And the disciples just consistently were receiving his word. Did they have it again? Did they have it perfect? No, they didn't. But there's a group now that are, that are like, I don't want to receive this anymore. I don't like this, and so I'm going to reject it, and I'm going to turn away. And there will be no faith on this day for so many of that crowd. Let's come to the third point this morning. Look at 63. And let's talk about the true disciples. They are ones in whom the Holy Spirit does life-giving work. Verse 63 says, Jesus' words here, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit 
and life. Let's read it again. This is a critical verse. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. If you remember last week, and if you weren't here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Flesh and blood, heritage, citizenship, good works, being nice, being kind, getting up on a Sunday morning, coming to church, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God by man's work. We can only enter the kingdom of God by Christ's work. So Jesus here, telling this crowd, contemplating walking away, but also reminding the twelve, the flesh is no help at all. It's not going to get you anywhere. And He says, but the Spirit is the one who gives life. So earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus said, the Father has life in Himself, and He's given this life to the Son. Now Jesus says, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has life. So if we're going to have life, it's going to be connected to the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Every member of the Trinity gives life. And so Jesus here says, listen, the Spirit is intimately involved in this. But we have to ask a question at this point, and the question is this. So why do some people not believe? Why do people reject Christ? Why do people say no to all the things that are connected to the truth in Scripture? And I want to share some things with us as to why people reject the Spirit's work of bringing people to salvation. And the first reason is what Jesus just talked about right here is far too many people try to understand Christianity and faith through the flesh. Just a man-centered perspective trying to figure out things. Our flesh is adamantly opposed to the truth in the greatest kind of way. And because so many people are trying to understand Christ through the flesh, it leads to a second reality as to why people reject the truth, and it's that people literally just misunderstand the truth. And it happens all the time. It happens in the text in John of what we've been reading. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, this ruler, comes and Jesus says, Hey, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And he's like, Whoa, 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 what? Yeah, I've I got to go back into my mother's womb. And I'm like, No, Nicodemus, come on. You've got to be born from above. This is not going back into your mother's womb, but you've got to be born of water. He's talking about it. And he's got to be born from above. And so some misunderstand it. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus like, I've got water to give you. And she's like, sir, can, can you tell me where this well is and where this water is so that I don't have to keep coming to this physical well and drawing water? Where's this water of life that you're talking about? Jesus like, no, it's not a place. It's me. I'm the one that can satisfy you. John chapter 5, the paralyzed man at Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, he was thought Jesus was focused on trying to help him get into the water really quick. He's like, I don't have anybody to help me get in there. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about I can heal you, not the water. I can heal you. And far too many people just simply misunderstand what's there. The third reason why people reject the truth, and this is a tough one, is that some people actually hate the truth. They hate it. And that's connected to hating Jesus. You go back to John chapter 3, in verse 19 and 20. John records these words, and this is the judgment of God. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Matter of fact, in John chapter 16, Pam and I were talking about this the other day um, together, just seeing all the stuff that's going on in, in America today, particularly toward the church and toward Jesus. I'm not sure why we're surprised people hate Jesus when he told us that people were going to hate him. And he said, it's just has always been this way. Um, the flesh hates the truth. It loves lies. It loves self. And so... So some people just reject the truth because they hate Jesus and they hate the truth. 
And if you've watched television, let's just say the last two weeks, we just see this reality in the hating of the church, the hating of Christ, the hating of truth, the hating of God's people, and the hating of the stand that we take in regard to morality and a number of different things. And so, so why do people reject the truth? One, they just try to understand it through the flesh. Secondly, they just literally misunderstand it. And thirdly, just some people hate it. The fourth reason people reject the truth is they are blinded to it. And this is a spiritual battle. You know that. But this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So some people reject because the enemy's been at work blinding people to see the truth of the glory of Christ. And here's the last reason. There's probably more, but here's five that I'd come up with that I think I know are, are pretty clear. And this is, has a lot to do with the people in the text here. Some people desire experience over true biblical expectations. So I just want to feel something. Church, make me feel something. Make me happy. And I don't really want to know the biblical expectations of that, but I just want to feel good. And I want to lovingly say to everyone in the room this morning, I could redo all of this. God's gifted me enough that I could preach in a way that will allow all of us to hear a message and to lay our head on our pillow at night much better. But it would damn your soul. And I don't want to be about that. So there's an opportunity for us to to desire and experience but reject the biblical expectations and mandates to follow what the Bible says. And that's the people here. They were seeking another experience the next day that they had had the day before, not because they loved Jesus. They didn't come and find Him in Capernaum because they loved Him and wanted to worship Him. But they show up for more bread. And then Jesus says, I'm just going to offer you myself, and I'm going to offer you my words. And they're not into either of those. And so Jesus says here, the words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are Life And so therefore, church, listen, his speaking is priority in everything. Now, we didn't come this morning hoping he would speak. He speaks. He is always speaking. He is the God who speaks. And so when we faithfully proclaim the word, he is speaking. And his speaking, when it comes, those who lean in, those who are like, bring it on. I want more life. I want more of you. They know that his speaking brings life. Because it comes in the heart of the Holy Spirit's great work in bringing truth in a room like this to convict convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment that Jesus speaks about in the role of the Holy Spirit. I think years ago I told this, but I wanted to tell it again this morning. There was a missionary story that I read about that um, a missionary had gone into the, the heart of America and he had led an Indian tribe to faith and he had led the chief to faith in Christ. They had repented of their sin and the missionary was traveling around to different places sharing the gospel, and came back to this village. And when he approached the village, he could tell from a distance something was not right within the village. And the closer he got and the deeper he got in, he could see troubled looks on the face of the people. And so he asked them, what's going on? And said, well, the chief's been in his tent, and he is not leaving, and we're not for sure exactly what's going on and what's taking place. And so the missionary said, well, can I go talk to him? And so he goes into the tent and he sits down with the chief and he says, Chief, what's up? People are troubled. What's going on? I can tell that you're troubled by the countenance of your face. And the chief said, there's a big battle going on inside of me. There's a big dog on one side and there's a big dog on the other side and they are battling. And so the missionary asked a great question. He said, well, which one of those 
two great dogs are winning. And he said, whichever one I feed the most is the one that's winning. And church, I just I want to remind you and I today before we move on to the next point. We are going to feed our flesh, which is no help at all. Or we will allow the word of God to feed our spirit, which gives life. And we will receive that or we'll reject it this morning. Because those are the two options. To receive that or to reject it. And so Jesus says, the Holy Spirit does this life-giving work in true disciples. But those who don't want to follow, they reject it and they walk away. So look now at verse 64 and verse 65. And I want to talk about lack of belief. Jesus mentions betrayal. And I want to mention one more time because Jesus does hear the drawing of Jesus. So 64 and 65. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So let's just touch on three things real briefly. Then I want to talk about something that is really critical that's going on in our country today. So Jesus says in the first part of 64, there's a lack of belief. So he knew in that outer crowd of disciples who had joined three or four months before or a year before and were following around and they were part of this community of believers going all over Israel. He knew which of them were going to walk away because he knows all things. He knew that Judas would eventually betray him. I've often wondered what Jesus thought sometimes as he looked at Judas. This guy that was there knowing what what Judas was going to decide. And so Jesus knew that there would be a lack of belief in this group of people. And that there would always be a lack of belief in people who come to church. Who are around Christianity. Who have Christian friends. Who know how to talk the language that there would eventually be a lack of belief in them and that they would walk away. And so there would be a lack of belief and that sometimes there would be a betrayal. On this day, let me remind you, Judas doesn't walk away. And he may look at these people who turn and walk away and go, God, what's wrong with those people? So it's easy. It's easy to just coast It's easy to fool ourselves that something's not going on in our hearts about Christ. And so Jesus knows that there would be lack of belief. He knows about the betrayal, but he also knows this great news. That the Father is always at work drawing people, even in the midst of of settings like this one that we're reading about, and that people are authentically coming to Christ. On Thursday morning, I sat outside that stained glass window there and and we had, a, we had a Zoom call, whatever you call it, I don't know if it was Zoom, but we had a Zoom call with our, with our partners in Nepal. And you talk about lockdown, we don't know about lockdown, they've been locked down. And I was deeply, deeply jealous, as our brothers in Nepal shared with us, that during their unbelievable lockdown, I mean, I'm just telling you, Stores not open. Incredible stuff. Throughout New Life Churches, 111 people have come to faith during COVID. And I look around and I just go, what's going on with the Western church? And I know God's saving people in America. But we have become a land that has rejected the truth of God and it has begun to drift into the church. And I want to talk about this for a moment because I think it's absolutely necessary. Because you and I would be foolish to think that we would not fall prey to false gospels that are being taught and proclaimed. Now there is something that goes on in the secular aspect of of not like outside of church stuff in our country today that is drifting into the church And I think they are one and the same. They just have different focuses. And it's called progressivism. So there are progressives in politics in regard to 
the United States of America who want us to ignore the founding and how this country came together, our, our long-standing belief about marriage and, and all of these things about integrity and all of this kind of stuff. And so there's that in, in regard to our country, in regard to political aspects of things. But there's also something called progressive Christianity. And it is incredibly dangerous. And it aims to change the fabric and the tenets of historic Christianity. And it is often marked by, in the end, a walking away from true authentic faith for somebody making up their own version of Christianity and their own Jesus and their own belief system, which is not really true. It is actually false. And so often, in the name of love, Progressive Christianity aims its focus on happiness and inclusion. So a lot of things get allowed to be established in a church or a group or a ministry. Progressive Christianity aims to loosen the lines of historic Christianity and biblical Christianity, not leave them as they are. They want to change them and leave and encourage us to leave them. It's deeply liberal, just as progressives in this country are deeply liberal in their view of a number of things. Progressive Christianity is that way. And much like secular progressives attacking the historical foundations of this nation, progressive Christians are doing the same. And I want to share with you three really critical things about this that we need to be aware of. Because listen to me, church. What we're reading in John chapter 6 happened 2,000 years ago. There is nothing new that happens. And it's happening today just like it happens in John chapter 6. There are scores of people walking away from the faith, wanting a Jesus that's not biblical and wanting something that's different. So I I want you to understand progressive Christianity. We know it about, we know progressives in regard to our culture and things but it's important to see that here's what progressive Christianity does. It attacks the church and it attacks the Bible by casting doubts on historical Christianity. And that is in regard to areas like marriage, gender, homosexuality, life, abortion, roles of men and women within the church, Attempting to downplay or redefine what the Bible is very clear of. And if you don't hold to progressive Christianity's view of things, just as progressivism is in America, you are labeled as bigoted, not open-minded, not loving, and not caring. And so progressive Christianity is doing a harmful work by attacking and casting doubt on historical Christianity. Which, by the way, let me just say this. The world has had 2,000 years to debunk our faith, and it cannot do it. And man's arrogance is so huge that we think in the year 2020 or in the 21st century that we have figured out things to just make Christianity crumble and, and, and the news is this, is it is not going to crumble. But man will. And man's ideas and rebellion against God, it will crumble. Because just because somebody doubts or because somebody wants to shine a light of negativity about Christianity doesn't mean that it's false. It is, it is held up pretty well in the midst of some pretty awful things throughout the history of the church. The second thing I want to talk about for a moment that we see in the text and we see today is there is great distortion of the truth of God's Word in progressive Christianity. There's such an emphasis in progressive Christianity on the benefits of Christianity without the responsibility of Christianity. So you avoid, here's what churches, progressive churches do, you avoid talking about hard truth. So preaching becomes man-centered, focused on happiness and feelings. Progressive Christianity is not necessarily united by politics like Republicans or Democrats can be. 
But it has a strong tie to what we call postmodernism. Postmodernism is this. Reject any truth claim that's out there. So if this group has a truth claim, reject it. Christianity has a truth claim, reject it. Buddhism has a truth claim, reject it. Everybody reject all the, the meta-narratives and reject everything for personal view of truth. And we are living, and it's increasing in these days, the very end of the book of Judges. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And there's a great distortion that's, that's going on. And what progressive Christianity says is this, and this distortion of God's Word is, cast as many doubts on God's Word. Cast questions, cast doubts on God's Word. Question historic faith instead of embracing it as it is. And so you're encouraged to question the historical faith stances and shift from them. Now let me just deal with this for a moment. I know people doubt. That's a reality of life. But if you're in the church and you're going to remain around the church, at some point in time, there's a big difference with, that you have to do with doubt. Some people want to ask questions to attack Christianity so that, watch, so that they can move further away from it. And then sometimes we have doubts and we ask questions because we want to move, move closer to it to understand things. Are you all with me in that? So sometimes... The questions come in progressive Christianity because people just want to move away from the standard of truth. And then sometimes it's good to ask questions that we wrestle with. I don't understand this. But the question comes with the desire to learn, not to step away from, but to step into the truth. And here's the third thing about progressive Christianity before we move on. Is man becomes the center of, Man is the center of progressive Christianity. Where everything's about making sure you feel good. And I see Ryan Phillips back there, and I want Ryan Phillips to lay his head on his pillow tonight, just feeling good about life. I've got a, a lovely family. I love my family, and, and I feel good about this. And I, I want that for Ryan, but I... But what I want for Ryan more than that is I want Ryan to lay his head on his pillow to know in confidence that everything about Christianity is true. And they can rest his soul in that. And so when the circumstances, when he wakes up from that pillow the next morning and some chaos at work happens or something else happens, there's a confidence and there's a security that's there that permeates and, and overshadows anything that's connected to the flesh. That there's a confidence to believe. And things, and in a culture where progressives attack the truth, and in the church system where progressive Christianity is attacking the truth with lies, I want to say to you and I this morning, those of us who are all in with Jesus, we stand for the truth. So that means in November, when you go to the ballot box, and you you should go in this country you should go to the ballot box on that Tuesday. You should not stay at home. We should embrace the freedom that God has given us in this country, and you should vote considering biblical values. Biblical values. I don't ever vote for a candidate. I look at a platform, what do they stand for? And listen, church, it's... I'm, you may think I'm getting political here. I'm not. I'm just telling the truth. In this country, we have an opportunity as believers to make our voice known daily and at the election. And we are in a time where this progressive reality of things is overtaking our nation and is overtaking the church. And it's time for His people to be all in. To be all in. And so... That's enough of that. So what happens when the all-ins walk away? Look at 66. After this, many, not a few, not one or two, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So watch what's going on here. So I'm an apostle. I'm Thaddeus. John is from Nazareth. We came through Nazareth. Jesus did some stuff, and John was like, man, that's awesome. I'm going to start following that group of people. And so John walks away from his home, and he's following Jesus, and I get to know John. John and I become friends. As we walk along, I'm an apostle, and I'm talking with John about things that we've experienced with Christ. And, and John's asking questions, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, Jesus talked about this one time. This is what Jesus told us about that. And then one day, John just goes, hey, dope. Hey, it's been a cool three months that we've been walking together, and you kind of helped me, but I'm kind of done with this because of what he said. And I, it's, just, it's just too much, and I don't want to count the cost, and so I'm going back home. So I hope I have a nice life. And I would stand there, and I would watch John walk away, and I would wonder, God, what's going to happen to somebody? Because the most foolish thing that you can do is to step away from Jesus. And I would watch John disappear from my sight. And this is what happens in the text. He pleads with them one more time and shares with them, listen, the Spirit gives life. You're here with me. And they turn away. So right there, they just turned from Jesus. They gave Him their back and they went back to their old lives. I don't think this means they went back to being a drunk. I think they just went back to fleshly things. And they no longer walked with him. This phrase, walk here, comes from two Greek words that means alongside and walk. They just stopped being alongside him. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be in that group? What an incredible thing that would have been. And they refused to go forward with him and his mission with the Father. The troops become smaller on this day. following Christ with emotion or because we like what He does will never be enough for sustaining faith for this reason. Eventually the hard teachings come and you do have to count the cost. And there's going to be a hard demand to lay our life down. It's always going to come and if all we want are the good feelings then one will never stay and be faithful. This life is tough. This faith sometimes, let's just be honest, it's tough. My flesh doesn't want to walk it. I don't feel it, but it's worth it. And they walk away thinking there's a more easy life away from Jesus and a comfortable faith maybe to be found away from Him or in another kind of thing, but they turn away in ignorance. And anything less then biblical truth will never lead to a stability in life. It will not lead to a stability in life. And if we do not like all the words of Jesus, then it is possible that some of us will walk away at some particular point in time. Because the faith that primarily follows with feelings eventually gets crushed under the weight of factual truth. It just happens. In Jude 22, it tells us that we ought to have mercy on those who doubt if you're in the room this morning and you doubt whether God exists, whether God is loving and you have doubt, if that's you, I grant you mercy. Just as Jude writes there, Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. But I would encourage you to seek what is true and aim to leave doubt behind and move into faith. Your doubts don't change the truth of who God is. And I plead with you to come back to the truth. And then there is the core. Look at 67. So we're going to leave his disciples and there's going to be a new language spoken. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus here is going to give us principles about the core. Those that are going to remain and be faithful, they're not going to walk away. Even when they don't understand it all, and it's difficult, even when they make mistakes, what marks the core? And Jesus has two primary questions to the core. 
He has these two primary questions to us in the room this morning. The first one is this. It's a question of desire, and it's a question of direction. The question of desire, he turns to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Is this your desire? Do you want to go away and be with them? Do you want to follow them and go back to your old lives? And so he asks them about their desire. Do you want to go away? Now, I want to share a verse that has been butchered through the centuries and incredibly butchered in progressive Christianity. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Wow, that sounds awesome. So if I get real excited about Jesus, I delight myself in Him. He will give me the desires of my heart? Man, I, I could work this into a 2021 tundra? Wow, that's an upgrade from a 2010 I don't even have a backup camera in my 2010. Whoa. So is that what he's talking about? Watch. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, making Him your treasure, what's going to be the desire of your heart? The treasure. Jesus. So what's Psalm 37.4 talking about? It's not talking about what? The flesh counts, contributes to nothing Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. What is the desires of your heart? Jesus. When He's the treasure, what do you desire more? You desire more of Jesus. So we ask them, what do you want? Do you want to be like them? And then He asks them, do you want to go away as well? He asks them a question of direction. And then Peter gives us the core convictions, four of them. So Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me give them to you. Here's the core convictions that we must have. The first one is this. We must know and embrace Jesus as Lord. He's Lord. He's sovereign over everything. He has the power. He has the might. So he's, he calls him Lord, Lord, Lord. And then he says, you are the one that we're going to pursue. Our direction's with you. So he says, to whom shall we go? We know we must pursue the Lord. So we know Jesus is Lord. And we know then we have to pursue him as Lord, to know him. The world holds nothing for us, so we abide and we stay in the counseling words and the powerful words of Christ. Thirdly, third core conviction is we know Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So Peter says they're just significant words. You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. You have them. And Peter here is making one of the most significant steps we can all make in our life. And it's this, you cannot separate the Word from Jesus. He is the Word. You've got the words. You've got the words. You are the one. You're the Word man. You are the Word man. We're not going anywhere else. And so to receive Christ, to receive His Word, and to receive His Word is to receive Him into our lives. And the fourth core conviction that Peter sets forth that we must have is that we must know and believe that He is God, that it's settled for us, just settled. So Peter says, and we have believed and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Our faith is only as good as its object. And when it rests in the Holy One of God, then we have the greatest joy and security in this life. And so Peter just shares with us four key core convictions that we have to have. And the last thing is just this. Nearness doesn't mean knowing and following. Look at 70 and 71. So Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas is an interesting one to ponder. 
right in the midst of this core group is one who looked and sounded like he was faithful and he was a sincere follower. But he was not being transformed listening to the words of Christ along the way for he as well was following for his own reasons. And he stayed that day possibly looking down on those who walked away. And Let's just be gut-wrenching honest right now. Everyone in the room this morning falls into four, one of four categories. We're with the crowd just wanting Jesus to do a bunch of stuff for us. We're with the extended group of disciples just wanting an experience but not really wanting to embrace the expectations and the call. Or we're Judas. At some point in time, we're, we're following for our own reasons, but our deal is we're going to portray or we will be as the apostles were that we're staying. We're in one of those four groups this morning. And I'm going to close with this picture. In Acts chapter 8, as it ends, there's a scene in Jerusalem where a young man is there. He's a young Pharisee. He's memorized the first five books of the Scripture. And they brought a man of God who loves Jesus out. And they lay him on the ground and they start taking their robes off and they lay him at the feet of this guy. And he's beholding what's happening. There's a guy that they've thrown down on the ground and, and they start throwing stones at him and they start hitting him in the head and in his body and he looks up to heaven. And as he looks up to heaven, he sees Jesus standing in heaven, which is pretty cool because Jesus is always seated in heaven and he's standing as the rocks are banging on Stephen's body and the apostle Paul, who would be apostle Paul, is called Saul at the time and he watches this and then he starts ravaging the church arresting people, doing havoc to the church. Well, he's on his way to do some more damage one day, and Jesus says, hey, dude, how about some bright light? How about being on the ground? How about some blindness? And the glory of the Lord threw the Apostle Paul from his horse, and he's on the ground. You know what's interesting? Do you know what the Apostle Paul's first words are? He recognized something happened in that moment. He said, who are you, Lord? He's like, okay, what just happened? Must be God. Must be the Lord. And for three days, Acts 9 tells us that he didn't eat or he didn't drink. And I think what the Apostle Paul was doing for three days, he was pondering his life. Do I stay where I am? Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of this, of this, that I can claim all these fleshly things that cannot get me into the kingdom of God. Or do I believe in Jesus Christ? And he believed. And boy, did he believe. In Acts chapter 20, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he meets with the Ephesian elders one last time. And he tells them, Ben, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit said to me, that all that awaits for me in every town and city that I go to is persecution. Yes, he says. And I'm going, because I'm all in with Jesus who changed my life and changed the trajectory and called me from fleshly things, getting me into the kingdom of God, me grounding my life into my heritage. And now it's not me, it's His life in me. And so I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's He who lives in me. And so that's Acts 20. And then way down the road, he's arrested and he's in Rome. Nero hates Paul. He's been causing havoc everywhere. And one last time he gets paper, at least one last time that we know of for sure. And he writes this letter back to Ephesus to this young pastor named Timothy. And he says these words. Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race and I've finished it. And now what awaits for me is the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then at some point in time after that, Nero laid his, under Nero's order, laid Paul's head likely on a stone block and they took a great big old sword and they cut his head off and he stepped into the presence of Jesus. So who lost? Well, Paul didn't. 
they didn't lose because it's worth it to count the cost when the chaos of the world, even under a Roman government, to know Jesus. So you're part of the crowd just wanting food, God to do stuff? Are you Judas? Are we of the 12? Or are we of this outer group who hasn't settled that he's going to be our shepherd and that our passion will be him for the remainder of our days? And I want to be all in. I don't know about you. Some days I don't look all in. I want to be all in. But let's be all in as best we can. Surrendering to the shepherd who's guiding us home. Guiding us home. Let's pray.